Mal Evans, an old Liverpool mate of Bill, was impressed by the band's demo tapes and took them to Apple Records where he worked. The Ivies were the first group to be signed to the Beatles' Apple label. I can remember the boys running around, literally running around the house, saying, Apple, Apple, you know, they just couldn't believe it. This was a dream for any band at that time, that the Beatles were interested. This week's one latest fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. All right. Well, we're back with part two of the Apple singles, but there are a couple things we want to mention before we get started. First off, if you're a person who frequents the uh, underground, there is a nice collection that some folks have put together of all of the Apple singles. Yeah, they're, they're, it's all collectible. Someone has actually put out a box set which contains all of this material, which is, is really nice. The existence of it did make it much easier to go back and listen to a lot of this material. Right. There were years where I would read about a single, but you couldn't find it. You never felt like you were ever going to hear it. But now you can find these things. Most of these are actually available on YouTube. <laughs> the world will be available on YouTube. Sooner or later. The other thing that's happened this week is we got additional preview tracks for the upcoming Let It Be box set. Yeah, I, in particular, was taken with uh, Across the Universe. This one sounds most different. Yes. You've always been given the impression that they were using the original tapes as a template, and this one doesn't seem quite that. Perhaps he doesn't feel beholden to Phil Spector quite as much as he does his dad. <laughs> right, so it's different, and not that it's bad. You can hear all of these separate pieces, which is the first time that that's ever been the case. Right. Even you go back to the World Wildlife version, that had always been kind of a slightly muddy mix, I think. Yeah, that seems kind of slapdash to me anyway. Speeded up and affected. But this, in particular, the string arrangement is more prominent i wouldn't say more to the front but it's just more discernible and as with everything else you can hear all of the tone of john's lead vocal which has never really been the case you couldn't hear how he was actually singing the words in previous versions right here you get all of the emotion that john's putting into the song in a way you know having heard specter's work on all things must pass coming back to 
let it be now. I kind of understand why things sound the way they did, because he tended in his wall of soundness to make it a whole, whereas now things are kind of spread out, and as I said, more discernible from other things. Well, and as we said throughout the All Things review, this is more or less the way people want to listen to music today in 2021 through headphones and whatever miscellaneous ways they're listening to it these days. Right. Beyond the uh, Across the Universe from the album, the 2021 Stereo Mix, we also got the Glenn Johns I'm Mine, which after listening to the Spectre version all these years, boy, that seems brief. <laughs> right. You, you can understand why he uh, said, oh, well, let's just add a little bit more here. You know, in, in my head always, Glenn Johns was kind of relegated to 1969. You know, his, his two different versions of Get Back were from that era. And I, in a way, was kind of surprised that there was a Glenn Johns mix of I Mean Mine, which was recorded in January of 1970. Yeah, that was the fourth and final Glenn Johns version I guess it was like, thank you very much, go produce the Eagles. Then the other two tracks, we got Take 8 of Get Back, and we got Take 3 of One After 909. Nice early versions, probably gives us a good feel for what we're going to get on that set of discs. Right. Oh, they just have teasing down to an art. <laughs> and then the other thing is the list price is still where it is, but retailers are actually coming down quite a bit and offering like 10% discounts, which do apply to pre-orders these days. I've seen the CD box available for as low as 101 US dollars and the vinyl box as low as about 125. I wasn't going to buy both, but I'm actually tempted. You know, getting those covers full-sized, it's just so nice. Right. I'm surprised they don't bundle. (laughs) Do an Uber box with both of them. (laughs) Right. And this one will just be $300. (laughs) <laughs> well, not even 300 I mean, that's less than 250 combined, so, you know. Right. And it gives me an extra copy of the book. <laughs> right. Uh, moving on from our topic last week, we got a whole mess of artists that were on Apple. Yes, and we didn't even really talk about the most successful. Let's start there. I mean, you know, other than the Beatles, of course, the most successful act was probably Badfinger. They had... Four international hits, and their biggest song was done by Harry Nilsson. So they were probably the most successful in regards to record sales. No, I can't forget tomorrow when I think of all my sorrow. And I heard know that Paul McCartney and John Lennon really admired the way Harry was singing. And now it's only fair that I should he sings it with such soul and such feeling. You think, well, he must have written it. And then you realize, actually written by two guys from a British band. Badfinger. Badfinger was signed to the Beatles' own label, Apple. And when Harry Nilsson first heard their original version of Without You, he thought it was an obscure track from the Fab Four. 
Harry and Derek Taylor tell this story of uh, getting drunk one evening and, and going back and listening to records and, and Harry thinking it was a Beatles <laughs> song and, and going back through all the Beatles albums the next day when he was sober and not being able to find it. <laughs> right. That demon rum. Yeah, he thought it was a McCartney tune. <laughs> Badfinger, or in their original incarnation, they were known as the Ivies, came to Apple through Mal Evans. It had slightly different personnel. They had Ron Griffiths, who also wrote tunes and, and had a couple of tunes on the original album. You know, the Ivies were going to be the, the new pop band. Had a great song, Maybe Tomorrow. Yeah, they were the first real act that was signed up other than the Beatles. It's interesting that they didn't end up as part of the first four. I, I don't know, you know, w- when the uh, recording sessions took place. Maybe there wasn't anything ready. Uh, November of 68 is when Maybe Tomorrow was recorded. Well, that would have been too far after the, the first four. Yeah, so maybe maybe they just didn't have the material to record. Right. Or they weren't used to being in the studio or, you know, something along those lines. Right. And the producer on that was Tony Visconti, a name that's come up before and will come up again, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, he, he's around a lot, but he was kind of a, a hot producer at that time. And so, you know, here come the Ivies with the hot producer of the day. But Maybe Tomorrow had a sound that definitely was not Badfinger. Orchestration, it just didn't sound the way Badfinger would. It was, was more guitar-oriented. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it actually was more Beatle-esque than some of their later releases. Yes. But Maybe Tomorrow also wasn't really a hit. Well, it was a hit in some countries. Big in Japan, as Spinal Tap (laughs) likes to say. Right. (laughs) But it didn't dent the charts in the UK, and it only came up to number 67 in the US. Right. No impact at all. Then they released a, a second single, Dear Angie, which also failed to do much right and that that's a ron griffiths tune actually he was definitely part of the band and left for personal reasons and was replaced uh by joey Mullen. i mean we didn't have any real success as the ivies so that is the transformation of the band into badfinger they hired joey Molland. there was also an article in disc and music echo we sort of got really negative for about i don't know it must have been nine months or a year we, you know, we didn't have any confidence in our own material or anything. We feel neglected. We keep writing songs for a new single and submitting them to Apple, but they keep sending them back saying they're not good enough. <laughs> Seems like an interesting strategy to get your label to pay attention to you. The weird thing is it worked. Paul read the story and said, oh, you want a hit? Okay, I'll give you a hit. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Living legends coming around to chat to us. But he wanted us to do it. He, want, he wanted us to break out of the small time into the big time. And that was the vehicle that did it. Ron played on that recording, but it was to be for the last time. I was married and I had a, a young son, Jason. And we were squeezed together in this house. Uh, you know, I, we didn't have enough money for me to go and live elsewhere. He didn't get kicked out, he got pressured out, you know, which was very unfair. And I blame Tommy for that one, you know, because Ron was, he wasn't doing nothing wrong, musically, all right? And uh, that, so it just, it just fizzled out, you know what I'm saying? He didn't fit in anymore because we were all partying and he wasn't, you know? I can give it, but you better hurry cause it may not last. Ron was quickly airbrushed out of the group. His picture wasn't even on the album or single. 
although I was on it, I mean, I had the pleasure of watching it go up the charts and I was riding to work in hail, wind and snow on a push bike. When Badfinger appeared on top of the pops, a new man, Joey Mullen from Liverpool, had taken Ron's place. Now we got Pete, myself from Wales, and we got Joey, and we got Tommy from Liverpool. The name had to go, and uh, John Lennon, everybody put their penny in to get a name. He wanted to call us the pre pronounced pricks, P R I X. That's what he meant. The glass onion was another one of his. The Cagneys, they wanted to call us the Cagneys because we were little punks. <laughs> Paul had come and get it in his back pocket and bought the redubbed Badfinger. Badfinger coming from the working title for a little help for my friends, the Badfinger Boogie. Right. Flip side was Rock of Ages, which was helped along by Paul. Great single. That was the, the hit single, and that was to launch Badfinger on their career. Really, yes. the, 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 the career which Joey, which Joey Molland is still living off of to this day. <laughs> right, and he's not on it. Um, yeah, it, it, it was kind of a, a blessing and a curse at the same time because the, you know, that close a connection with the Beatles, the first single that they created world notice with, written by McCartney. So there was always kind of this, well, yeah, yeah, Paul McCartney wrote your your first single. Now what you got? Well, they did come back with another hit, a hit originally produced by Mal Evans, but the, the, the final mix didn't quite satisfy everybody, so it had to be rejiggered a little bit, no matter what. Right. But at the same time, he is listed as producer, and so what it is that got recorded and put down, he oversaw, and he ended up producing several Badfinger songs. Jeff Emmerich remixed it. Yes. And the B-side of that was Better Days. In Britain. Here it was Carry On Until Tomorrow, which was kind of weird because when I bought the single, I had already acquired Magic Christian music, and it was just weird to have this song on the flip side. Then their next single was Day After Day. Harrison helped out on that one, played on it. It was a duet slide lead with Pete Ham. It was a hit, a solid hit. <laughs> and then their final single on Apple is is Apple of My Eye. You left out Baby Blue. Was that released as a single? Definitely a single, because I bought it. <laughs> it was released as a single in the States, not in the UK. The singles differ between the two countries. That surprises me that it, it wouldn't be released in Britain. But the single that was released here was specially mixed again by Todd Rundgren. And I, I listened to them today to see, you know, what the difference was, what he did to it to make it a single. And basically it seemed to me that in the album recording, the snare hit is kind of a flam. You know, um, whereas on the American single, it's just a solid loud stair hit and it makes a difference in the impact of the record baby blue was a u.s single in 1972 which uh, got all the way to number 14 but it did not get released in the uk as a single until 2013 
You remember it was used in Breaking Bad. <laughs> uh, well, the final oh, song yes. that closed out the entire series was Baby Blue by Badfinger. He wanted a love song, not just the chemistry, a love song for the act of creation, the love song to making Breaking Bad, to our collaboration, everyone's collective collaboration. It was the perfect way to go out. Summed it up perfectly. Huh? Perfectly. And it was one of those moments where I thought, ah, oh, if only I had known. But the truth is, sometimes you don't know until the very end. The song received airplay and had some popularity because of its appearance in the TV show. So the UK, as the UK does, uh, Rush released it as a single, and it actually cracked the top 100 in the UK. <laughs> That's amazing. Apple of my eye, you know, the story of behind that is Badfinger had obtained some new management, and they were determined to uh, leave Apple, but the guys in the band actually didn't want to leave the label. Yeah, it's wistful. It's like, we don't really want to go, but it's it's time. George rang me up one night. He said, Bill, what bloody happened? You're leaving us. I said, you can blame that manager that you put in to look after your affairs. Well, I'm sorry. He was very distressed at leaving Apple. He really did feel that something very special was lost. Even if they had proper management, there's no way they could have stayed with Apple. Well, it was kind of falling apart at that point. Who is in charge? Alan Klein? Or actually, it seems to be Al Steckler, who is a guy in the U.S. who worked for Klein, who was kind of in charge of what was being released at Apple. The next artist we want to talk about is actually probably the single most popular of the Apple artists other than the Beatles, although his popularity did not come through Apple Records. That's James Taylor. Yes. His success truly was outside of Apple. The album James Taylor, uh, Sweet Baby James, was uh, the album of the year, basically, at that point. And was the beginning of the singer-songwriter era. So it was Danny Korchmar who introduced James Taylor to Peter Asher. Danny Korchmar, the guitar player who's basically on all of those 70s singer-songwriter uh, albums. <laughs> he, he's all over Carol King's work. Right. They had actually been in a band called Flying Machine, and that's what the lyrics in Fire and Rain reference. Sweet dreams and flying machines in on the ground. Danny Korchmar called up Peter and said, you know, this, this guy's coming over. You should listen to him. And that's what happened. He had a style of guitar playing, which was, you know, a signature style, even though it doesn't get a lot of mention. I think is that first album I love. There's nothing about it that I don't like. It's it's different. Well, and Paul's bass playing on that version of Carolina On My Mind that was not duplicated in the later version. Right. You know, it's gorgeous. And I think they did background vocals on that too, didn't they? I think uh, he, yeah. He and George, maybe. Peter then brought uh, James into an Apple A&R meeting. Paul loved it. John said, whatever you want to do. <laughs> George was also into it. Obviously, he was into it enough that he would... Uh, borrow some lyrics for something <laughs> right do you think that was a conscious thing or did he just go boy that's a great line i'm going to use it 
a little bit of each, you know, something in the way, and it's like, oh, okay, that works. But that's also generic enough that it's not here comes old flat top. <laughs> it's not a series of words that you'd have to actually consciously write. Yeah, I guess so. And as James Taylor says, you know, I didn't care because I ripped off the end from I Feel Fine. <laughs> well, I think we discussed this before that really there's not much totally original. I mean, people tend to use their influences pretty liberally. And so sometimes that means part of something becomes part of something else. As we were just mentioning, Peter apparently had a an interesting agreement with the Beatles with regards to James Taylor. In Peter's words, he said, uh, look, I'm signing this guy. I think I probably would have quit if they'd said no, but that wasn't even an issue. I was the head of A&R. I find an act I love. I'm signing him. And then they all went, okay. That would obviously change once Alan Klein entered the picture. But in the beginning, it's like, sure, you want to bring him in? You want to put him on the label? Great, we'll do that. The beginnings of Apple certainly had a hippie ethos. You know, it was kind of like handshake deals and, hey, everything is cool and don't harsh me. That's not Alan Klein at all. And so when he came in, I've read some people arguing that he came in and did a good job, you know, made the company more like an operating business. But that really wasn't what it started out. But in, in terms of the artists and these singles we're talking about, it's kind of shocking to realize just how early Alan Klein came in. There's a Rolling Stone interview with James Taylor in August of 69. This is before, well before anything got released where he's complaining about Alan Klein. Klein was there at the beginning of 69 and was redoing Apple all through 69. I think it was in July that he fired Peter Asher. Uh, Peter Asher called me up and said, um, Alan Klein has taken over uh, Apple Records and, uh, um, you know, this place is, is, uh, is finished. Klein, he was kind of ripping things up and reconstructing them in his image so, yeah, what, what James said in that Rolling Stone interview was, in a way, it's all up to Alan Klein, isn't it? He's got my record contract, and now he's after my writing. I know he is. He's in charge of my money now. He's also responsible for my career, and it terrifies me. Yeah. It was known in New York, in the music business. wasn't that known, I guess, in Britain, if you weren't a Rolling Stone. So James was concerned that he was in control. But when Asher left... He took James with him. He, he said, I propose uh, coming, to, uh, coming to the States. Um, once I get myself set up with a, with a job, um, I'll manage you uh, and produce a, a second record, and, and uh, we'll find a, a label. And uh, so I said, yeah, that sounds good. I called Paul McCartney and asked his opinion of, uh, of whether he thought Peter would be a good manager, and he, he allowed us, yeah, how, how he would be. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Well, they've so, been roommates, so... Yeah. He was obligated to say that. That's what Peter says in a separate interview. I didn't negotiate anything. I just left and took the tapes with me. So <laughs> Alan Klein did say in a Playboy interview that he was going to sue both Asher and Taylor for $50 million a piece. Well, that never happened. <laughs> right. And so given that Alan Klein would sue at the drop of a hat and that didn't happen, Peter must have had some sort of deal with Apple 
written into the contract. Well, there's also the, the talk that George basically said, let it go. Yeah, but could even George convince Alan Klein of that? Well, if Paul would have asked him, it would be no. But that was right around when Klein was still in a position to need to curry the favor of everybody. I mean, it was pretty lost to Paul, but George was still the boss at that point. Okay, so next up is Doris Troy, and she only had a couple singles on Apple. Right. Try as they might, Apple couldn't do anything with, with Doris Troy. George worked on her album. And, and it's a shame. I'm a fan of that Doris Troy album. Yeah, there, there are things on it I like. Peter Frampton played on that album, which is very cool. I like the Ain't That Cute single. Yeah, and there's a couple songs that Harrison wrote with her that are, I thought were pretty good. Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, that's the other single. Yeah. Jacob's Ladder with her version of Get Back on the Flip. Right. Which we talked about. Right, and, and Frampton played on her album. Frampton played on her album, and Frampton played on the single. That was actually when George first met Frampton. Who would later come in and help with... All Things Must Pass. Right, it's all connected. But they didn't score much. No traction, and Doris Troy's career never really sort of came all the way back afterwards. She basically falls into the one-hit wonder category.
Although, you know, like I say, she has good records afterwards. Whatever that magic is that makes someone catch. And, you know, because Just One Look was a big record. And then the cover of it made it even bigger. Why it didn't catch, I don't know. I have more questions about that than I do with Jackie Lomax. And there's just something about him that just never clicked with me. But Doris Troy is like, well, that, that should have worked. But it didn't, unfortunately. Now, that covers everyone that people probably remember. <laughs> now you go into the deep stuff. The first band we're going to mention is White Trash, relabeled as Trash. Yeah, there were some objections to the, the term White Trash. <laughs> it was never going to fly over here. The other reason it wasn't going to fly is that Johnny Winter was using it for his band. <laughs> that could be, yes. The name apparently came from house hippie Richard DeLillo. Right. It's like everybody at Apple had their pet act to be into, you know, Mal with Badfinger. White Trash, or Trash, seemed to click with Richard DeLillo. He photographed them and toured with them a little bit. I don't think much of their record. Road to Nowhere... I barely remember it, and I listened to it yesterday. Right. It's a Goffin King song, which is really weird. So It may not be the song. It may just be their version of it. It's one of the muddiest of the Apple records for me. Then the other one was a, was a cover of Golden Slumbers, which actually made the top 30. Right. There was some um, question about that at the time, because someone I forget who thought that they were just basically going to be making a demo of that and they came back with a master a full arrangement and it was like what did you do that for <laughs> but apparently according to the story Lennon came in and heard it and was like that sounds like us put it out <laughs> the white trash have made a single out of this folks and uh, well, have it's they used good strings to, on it? Or? Yeah, they've used strings and they've done some... It's pretty similar to the track we did, except they've done some nice things with a big organ, like a church organ playing a solo or something. That is also rather different for them because they've been enormously sort of gutsy and... Uh, yeah, well, they've uh, done it quite gutsy. You know, the song is sort of vaguely uh, gospel-y, in a way. Mm. You know, sleep, little darling, don't you cry, all that bit is a bit gospel-y. And uh, were any of you involved with the production of this, or...? Uh, not of the white trash, no, they did it completely. I don't know who produced it, you know. But they had a good star, uh, the Beatles album. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it's, uh... but they've done a good job of it. I hope they get a hit. Well, I mean, there was also a history in Britain of, well, the Beatles aren't releasing it as a single, we'll release it as a single. <laughs> right. That's how Obla D ended up a, a hit single. Right. Yeah, there was a long history of that. It's not a bad cover, but I mean, again, it's not something I pull out and listen to with any regularity. Right. Because you can listen to Paul McCartney sing it. <laughs> exactly. Okay, next up, Apple 18, the Hot Chocolate Band. The Hot Chocolate Band, which they did a version of Give Peace a Chance. It's okay. It is okay. Most people would be surprised that that band is actually famous for another song that came out some years later, five or six years later. That song still gets played on FM radio these days. It's long-lasting, for sure. It's catchy, and it gets in your head and just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's true. So the story behind them winding up on Apple was the, the lead singer had actually wanted to record a version of Give Peace a Chance, but he wanted to, to write some new lyrics to it, so he actually wrote to Apple for permission. 
and got it, I guess. Somehow this demo that he sent in then got to John, and John said, great, I like it. Let's put it out on Apple. Right. Another name pops up is their producer, Mickey Most, who's everywhere behind the scenes of Apple. He had uh, produced Sunshine Superman for Donovan before. Right. He was Mary Hopkins' producer between Paul and Tony Visconti. Mary got tired of, of Mickey Most pretty quickly. Well, I think he was kind of the, the Svengali in the, in the studio. His records had a certain thing. And... Mickey went on to form his own label, and, and he took the Hot Chocolate Band with him. <laughs> I don't think Alan Klein was suing them for $50 million. <laughs> right. And probably, in retrospect, Alan Klein wouldn't have threatened to sue for $50 million if it wasn't the fact that James Taylor became a huge success. Hot Chocolate Band at that point, the version of Give Peace a Chance wasn't a big success. And so, you know, yeah, you can go. But it's a weird situation that the label just kind of let the acts go, you know, with, with their respective people. Yeah, you can leave. Go ahead. A bit of interesting trivia. Hot Chocolate is the only group to have a hit in Britain every year in the 70s. Hit being defined as top 40. Well, they weren't that big here, but... No, but it's just interesting to me. Yeah, a decade's worth. <laughs> well, that's a career for most people. For sure. Next up is the Radhakrishna Temple. Yeah, this is a unique little project. Oh, Now, we, we can say for sure that this is a George Harrison project. Very definitely. The single was uh, Govinda. Well, there were two singles. The The first single was Hare Krishna Mantra. Right. And became hits uh, in some countries. Germany was a big hit there. And for the Hare Krishnas, for a long time, I don't know if they still do it, but the Hare Krishna Mantra record is still played at their retreats. It's a cool album. They most definitely still play it with their free Sunday brunches. They still come on college campuses and uh, invite the kids to come and they play it while while the kids are entering this uh, the temple. That's great. He so much appreciated the Hare Krishna mantra that he immediately said, let's make a 45 record. So we all went over to Abbey Road Studios, made that record, Hare Krishna mantra. None of us had ever done anything like this before. Paul McCartney was there, and he volunteered to mix it in the, from the control booth, and George played with us. He had a, a little sit-down harmonium with uh, psychedelic flowers all over it. And then all the Apple staff who was there joined in the chorus. It sold 70,000 copies the first day. Apple organized tours for us. We went to Germany and France and had television coverage. The Sunday Times wanted to do a feature on us, and we were able to send the report back to Srila Prabhupada with the headlines, Krishna Consciousness Startles London. That was another act that ended up with their work. Because that album belongs to them, not to Apple, per se. Although Apple does still have the rights to re-release it, because it was included in the the, the best of Apple, uh, the box that came out a couple years ago. Right. The Hare Krishna Mantra came in at number 12, and Govinda got to as high as number 23. 
those are British charts. Yeah. Again, while they're not songs you want to listen to, they're not. They're certainly not bad songs in the gospel. Well, the Krishna sort of mode. Right. You know, it's chanting, but it's the singing is good, and it's got a little bit of a beat to it. Yes. Klaus Vorman played on some of the songs on the album, so it's a little bit of East meets West, and it's well recorded. I like it. Again, I wouldn't listen to it all the time, but it's nice. Yeah, Chris O'Dell tells stories of them actually pulling her downstairs into the studio to get on the record because they wanted more female voices. <laughs> That's funny. Next is someone who we mentioned before, uh, Ronnie Spector. Phil Spector, one of his conditions was that uh, Ronnie Spector had to be signed to Apple as well. Which is a little bit weird because Phil doesn't seem to have been all that involved in Ronnie's records on Apple. I, I know she did try some by some, of course. You was meant to go to her, uh, which later George later released. The records themselves were just weren't that great. Yeah, but they're fun. You slip them in the middle of your playlist, no one's going to look at you funny. <laughs> I'll play Tandoori Chicken. <laughs> Next up is Bill Elliott and the Elastic Oz Band. God save Oz. You know, Oz was a, a paper in Britain. It was very counterculture, shall we say. And yes, it, it was edgy. Let's, call it, let's put it that way. It wasn't a hustler by any stretch of the imagination. Not at all. It was controversial. Um, it, it touched on subjects that were considered completely taboo. Abortion, homosexuality. Corruption, drug use, censorship and uh, racism. Police misconduct and so forth. You just didn't talk about those sorts of things back then. This is part of a group that Oz fitted into, but what it added was a scatological sense of humour. John supported it, you know. And so he he produced a record, and that, that was the result. One of the guys he had sing on it was Bill Elliott, who went on to be a member of Splinter, uh, signed on Dark Horse Records, produced by George. So, And we do get both the demo and the later version in the Imagine box. Right. Yeah, Bill Elliott apparently is another one that came in through Mal. Uh, Apparently, that's how it worked at Apple. <laughs> well, why shouldn't it? Mal found out about the Beatles before Brian did, so, you know. Yeah, it didn't seem to work like a normal uh, A&R situation. It was... Well, especially in, in some of these acts that we've got coming up here. You know, it, it's weird. As Apple progressed and as the Beatles separated from each other, it almost became more like what they originally wanted. <laughs> you know the last couple of acts we've got on here and, and you know even some of these that we that we just talked about it's like oh i'll send something in how how did hot chocolate get on apple oh we sent in our demo this man has talent yeah their lack of interest led to it coming full circle right next up is chris hodge who is championed by ringo ringo's contributions to apple have always been kind of like well what did he do but you know he brought in john Tavener. Who did not release any singles, so that's why we're not mentioning him. Exactly. But he did bring something to, to the label, this being another, Chris Hodge. Another not-so-memorable single, We're On Our Way. Yeah. Lyrics are about UFOs and aliens, and probably good that it wasn't a big success because, well, the, the cults were just around the corner. <laughs> right. It hit number 44 here in the U.S. 
I never heard the song until the eighties. It made no impact where I was around because I was, you know, looking out for Apple stuff, but I wasn't even aware of this. Chris Hodge was a songwriter and photographer living in Rome. You know, I, I guess the songwriting was sort of a sidelight. Uh, he was making his living as a photographer, apparently. Right. And, you know, pitching his stuff, and so he pitched it to Apple. Uh, uh, Tony King was who Chris Hodge actually apparently called up, and then Tony King got Ringo involved. Right. You know, whatever he had was enough to catch his attention. But I understand that Ringo actually uh, had some lyrical suggestions. Although Tony King and Chris Hodge apparently did not get along there's an interview where Tony King describes Chris Hodge as a nightmare and a bit of a headache. <laughs> Chris Hodge apparently favored the Elton John style of uh, clothing. Satin jackets, silver boots, big glasses, and big big hats. Yeah. Well, you know, that was kind of, what was that, 73? I think that was kind of uh, in the, the glam era. Didn't make any kind of splash. It made number 44 on Billboard, which... Yeah, it's not top 40, but that's a fair bit of sales. I don't know what the sales are, to tell you the truth. You know, it, it could be. Even to hit the top 100 at the time, you were talking about uh, tens of thousands of copies at least. Well, there are probably that many collectors back then. <laughs> <I'm> collect- <laughs> any, anything in, on an Apple, I'm collecting. So you can yeah, guarantee yeah. 10,000. It did 50 places higher than than the top 100 so <laughs> right yeah so you had your little niche marketing i guess ufo people that that thing was sort of <laughs> starting to, to creep up at the time as well this is a record that will appeal to the glam folks and people who are into ufos maybe that's what john seeing the ufo was all about they, they wanted more promotion for the record <laughs> john and may went up on the roof and, and what what it really said was sell more copies of, of this record <laughs> We're on our way. <laughs> All right. Okay, next up is the, the Sundown Playboys. Now, <laughs> now there's one which I, I hadn't heard a thing about. This is the first time I'd ever actually listened to the single. Yeah, it was almost like, well, here's a kind of a Zydeco record that we could release. Hey, let's do that. You know, George apparently was the one who heard it and was like, you know, we need to release this. It didn't really have the promotional backing. It wasn't anything like they'd put out. You know, it was, it's, it's, a, it's one of the weirdest records of Apple. Particularly when you consider that they had already pressed up copies with a local label. <laughs> and so this wasn't a demo that they sent them. They sent them a copy. Of the record. There were promotional 45s pressed up, and that was what they sent to Apple. There's Tony King once again. Da, 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 da. Tony King picked up the record and sent it along to George Harrison. Yeah, it's a weird record. Not a weird record, it's just... Not at all what you would expect. The guys from the Sundown Playboys uh, are quoted as saying, it was a typical French group from Lake Charles, a typical record. There was no big thing about it. I got a call from Apple's New York office, and I still couldn't believe what was happening. 
I have a back page ad they ran in billboards. So so there you go. If you've got the old billboards, go go leaf through them and see if you can find the the back page ad for this single. Right. And, and then perhaps the strangest of the strange things with this single, I've got a sample promotion kit back to mono. Well, of course, you know, Phil was around. Of course, they're going to do a back to mono thing. Right. Uh, which included a copy of the record on 78, 78, <laughs> and a 45 copy along with some promo stuff. I love to tell this story because it's one of the craziest things that can happen in this business. It's weird. 78. What? Well, I mean, you know, record players still had 78s on them. That is one of the things that lets you know just how old we are. We've got record players that can play 78s. Yeah. Anything made after the vinyl revival, you're lucky if they can do both 33 and 45. This is how old I am. My first record player had 16, 33, 45, and 78 at four speeds. This single is another one which actually got a little bit of traction later on because it appeared in the movie Sister, Sister in 1988. Not enough to chart. Yeah, we should have had a a 78 of this song in 1988. uh, (laughs) I'm surprised this got used in a movie. Apple still has some pull in the industry. They can get things into TV and movies and commercials if they actually want to. True. I mean, particularly if somebody just sort of hears the song and it's like, Oh, well, I like, yeah, yeah, we'll license it to you. Here you go. Yeah, you have people actually working, doing that. What some publishers do is go out and work the song. Okay, let's see, we got a couple acts here, and then we'll talk a little bit about the solo Beatles, how how they wind into this story. Both of these are actually acts which are pretty strongly backed by separate individual solo Beatles, the first of which is uh, Elephant's Memory. We all know Elephant's Memory from sometime in New York City and uh, the live show. The one-to-one. They got to record an album. Their single, what was it? Power Boogie? Let's do the Power Boogie! Let's do the Power Boogie! They were a good bar band. <laughs> That's probably the best definition. They're tight and they play well. They're not virtuoso players, but they can play. And they can keep a groove going. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one-to-one show goes back and forth between being, you know, really cool and interesting to listen to and just kind of, eh, okay. <laughs> yes. I, I just I didn't find their, their compositions anything to stand out. The, the album... Didn't hit me hard. I heard it. Somebody else had it. I, I never got it. Um, but I liked their work on Sometime in New York City. They weren't a bad band. They also appeared on uh, Yoko's album, the the Approximately Infinite Universe uh, album of, around the same time. Right. And there are cuts on that that I like. So. All right. And then the last of the Apple artists, uh, or the singles from Apple artists that we're going to talk about here is is Lon and Derek Von Eaton. Other than that cover, that's a weird cover. <laughs> it is. It's not a bad record. No. <laughs> I just, you know, the, the first time I was aware of them was a, an ad, probably a billboard, maybe Rolling Stone, and it was that photograph and the Apple logo, and it was just an odd thing. You know, I didn't hear their music, but the picture is striking, especially for... 1972 or three when it was 
Yeah, just a couple years after Stonewall. Not that they were gay, but, well, the picture makes it look that way. Yeah. I mean, they're brothers. They're, yes, and they're and that's what the album is called, Brother. That I just have to think of it in context at the time. It was a striking photograph. You mentioned Alan Steckler. This is actually how they came to Apple. They sent their demos around to uh, the various A&R departments in New York City, one of which was Steckler's office. So Steckler then took the tape and forwarded it on to both John and George. Do we know what year that was? Was that 71? It's different in a way that there was still this idea that it was going. It was falling apart quickly, Apple was. These are the last of the artists to be signed and or released. And uh, so it's, it's interesting that John was still even making that kind of decision at that point. Beatle friend, man we all know about, Nat Weiss was actually involved in actually getting the contracts out and getting them signed to the label. People weave in and out of <laughs> yep. the story. So, so they signed on the 15th of September, then they flew to London on the 19th of September. Was the album recorded at that point? Or did they record? Or is, this a, is this an Apple Studios album? Yeah, this was an Apple Studios album. End of September, beginning of October was when they actually were, were recording at Apple. Ah. And they lived at Friar Park. <laughs> Who hasn't? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's the end of the, the non-Beatles Apple artists. It's, it's a strange list. Eclectic. And like you say, you listen to this compilation, the, the fan made, the needle drops of all the singles in order, and, and you get quite an experience. <laughs> right. There isn't a label sound. <laughs> it's all over the map. You expect differences in styles in regards to different acts, but even the records sound different. The other artist we didn't mention is Yoko, of course. Yoko had a couple singles on Apple. Right. And Yoko has managed to actually get her rights back. She will release her own archive stuff, not going through Apple. Well, that fits in with the history of being able to walk away with your masters, I guess. <laughs> Mrs. Lennon and Mind Train and Listen, the Snow is Falling. You know, she, she has re-released those. Death of Samantha. Run, 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 Back by Men, Men, Men in November of 1973. I remember that single. Run, 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 Men, 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 Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. Hey, <laughs> so the final non-Beatles single was uh, was Apple of My Eye, and that was in March of 74. Somehow apropos. So uh, just going quickly through some of the remaining singles, you got, you know, you got Band on the Run, you got Whatever Gets You Through the Night, you got Junior's Farm, Only You, Ding Dong, Ding Dong, Number Nine Dream. That's a powerhouse list you got right there before Paul slows us down with Sally G. <laughs> Are you claiming that as an A-side? Okay, Junior's Farm was the A-side. I think he he actually kind of... Pushed it to the double A-side, I think. And in his head, maybe they connected from standpoint of, you know, they were both done in Nashville, but the songs are miles apart. <laughs> and then uh, George had you in September of 1975, so, and as we mentioned, he's just singing over the backing that they'd already recorded for Ronnie. Right, which... Unfortunately, it puts it in a bad key for him. But Yeah, well, I mean, he speeded up his, his vocal, too. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, McCartney sped up his voice on a lot of Beatles stuff, but it, that's just the way you hear it now. You know, you don't go, oh, that's that's a Mickey Mouse voice. But, you know, Good Day Sunshine, When I'm 64. 
So yeah, Junior's Farm was Paul's last Apple single. And then each of the other three did get one of the last three. Imagine was uh, released in October 75 as a single, probably with Shayfish. Yeah, probably that's about right. How much earlier was Stand By Me from that? That was April. So after Junior's Farm was uh, was Snookeroo, uh, that's February of 75, then Dark Horse, then Stand By Me, Stand By Me, Back by Move Over Miss L. That's a killer single. Yeah, I like that song. <laughs> yeah. Well, both sides of it are just top notch. It, it should have charted higher than it did. Then You and World of Stone, Imagine and Working Class Hero. So the, yeah, that would have definitely been a Shave Fish single. Then in uh, 76, at the very, very tail end of Apple, you got Oh My My and the No-No song from Ringo. Uh, and the very last Apple single was This Guitar Can't Keep From Crying from George in February of 1976. And that's from Extra Texture. The album had the apple eaten to the cord, and then one of those singles had the blue apple on it. I believe it was Ringo's single that had the blue apple on it. Yeah. I did like to play around with the apple a little bit, particularly in later years. (laughs) That's the singles that were on Apple. I keep looking, you know, the Let It Be box, because we're getting so much mail about it now, that it just seems to be that it's closer than it really is. It's like, I could reach out and touch it. It's... It's coming in October, but there's still a few more weeks to go before it's here. From where we're sitting, we're recording this today on the uh, 19th of September. We will have Ringo's EP out by next week. That's out coming out this week. Ah. So it's, it's the 24th, I believe, is when we get the other three songs from Ringo's EP. Ah. Well, that'll be fun. And then Apple will tease us with another three songs from Let It Be. I think we'll probably only get one or two more. You know, we are pulling up on the box. Yeah, it's getting close. October the 15th is the release date, and at least for reviewing purposes, we have to be glad that the fourth disc is is an EP, because, well, we've only got three weeks after that to uh, to get ready for Get Back. I have officially renewed my Disney Channel account, so I'm, I'm ready and waiting <laughs> for it now. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's worth the price of admission. I'd let it expire after Loki. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, oh, yeah, I probably just need to renew it again. And so so I I got a coupon, and it's like, okay, fine. I went and renewed it for another year. (laughs) Yeah, that's all coming fast. Just got a couple weeks to do some stuff. And then then if they don't announce the next McCartney box set, we'll actually be able to talk – to and about other things uh, starting in 2022. Well, Paul better have an album ready soon. Well, he just had <laughs> one at the beginning of this year. Well, then it's a new year, won't it? <laughs> Paul did announce he's doing a some press for the for his book. Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have to talk about the book, although we'll see what that looks like once we actually get that. Yeah, because it is, after all, the lyrics to songs that we've talked about. <laughs> I mean, you know. I don't think there's anything new, per se. There might be some stories. We can each sort of go through some of our highlights and some of the photos, because that's the other thing. You know it's going to be packed with interesting photos. But not of Elvis Costello, apparently. (laughs) All right. So we'll be back next week with a new show. With new topics. Talk to you then. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, 
or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. friend Peter Asher one day came to the office and he showed up he said uh, I've got this guy from New York and he'll go on come on let's have a listen to it you know and um, for once it was someone really great uh, which we I must say we didn't really expect but uh, it was this kind of haunting guy who could really play the guitar and really sing beautifully and as I found out later, he'd, um, he'd been through a lot of troubles just recently, and he'd pulled himself out of them all. And he'd got over from New York, straightened himself out, and got to England. And um, we were just lucky to run into him. He was lucky to run into us, I suppose. And he started singing, and um, it was just so beautiful that right there and then we said, okay, he's on Apple. And so he was one of our very first artists on Apple. So as I say, I'm not going to go on too much about him except to say that I love him. And he's a really beautiful guy. And we had a lot of good times back then, I think. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.